0: Hello there, I'm Toby Hadoke and in these parts live evil spirits. Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, a television programme about learning about science and history using the medium of peril. Whether you're discovering the episodes for the very first time, or you know your Tegans from your Tiganas, then you're extremely welcome on this odyssey behind the scenes, which aims to go through the series one episode at a time. In this edition, it's the beginning of Doctor Who's first lost classic, the historical epic which leaves a large hole by being completely unrepresented in the BBC archives, much loved by all of those who made it, and a thoughtful historical saga based on meticulous research. So join me, Toby Haydock, as I give you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, the roof of the world. Or it's mint with a hole in the snow. First broadcast, 22nd of February 1964 at a quarter past five in the evening. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman, with guest stars Mark Eden as Marco Polo and Darren Nesbitt as Tigana, and introducing Xenia Merton as Ping Cho. It was written by John Luca Rotti, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Warris Hussain. It was watched by 9.4 million people, and the audience appreciation was 63. TARDIS has landed on a snowy mountain, and Susan and Barbara find a giant footprint in the snow. The TARDIS has a damaged circuit, which means no heat or water within for the travellers. Surrounded by Mongol warriors, they are saved by Venetian traveller Marco Polo, who is in charge of a convoy heading to Cathay, China. Suspicious warlord Tigana and a young girl headed for an arranged marriage, Ping Cho, who befriends Susan, are among the travellers. Ian is honest about the TARDIS's special abilities when talking to Marco, who decides to take the machine for himself as a gift for Kubla Khan in order to secure his own release from the Khan's obligations. The When 3rd of October, 1955. John Lucarotti's 18-part half-hour episodes radio serial, The Three Journeys of Marco Polo, premieres on the CBC Trans Canada radio network and transmits across the rest of Canada the following day. And so begins the Venetians' long journey into the universe of Doctor Who. 9th of July 1963. The final stretch of that journey begins officially today with Lucarotti commissioned to write the seven-part story Doctor Who and A Journey to Cathay. Lucarotti has been recommended to the production team by Head of Drama and the brains behind the conception of Doctor Who, Sidney Newman. Newman knows Lucarotti from the times they encountered each other at the Canadian Broadcasting Company. Lucarotti now lives in Mallorca in a houseboat, and so his contact with the production team when developing the story will not necessarily be particularly straightforward. He'd visited the production team in London in June, which is when he'd decided to capitalise upon his previous work about Marco Polo when pitching to script editor David Whittaker and producer Verity Lambert for this educational new science fiction show. But from here on in, his back and forths are by somewhat more convoluted means. 12th of July the BBC drama group's Aiton Whitaker, responding to a script editor report prepared by David Whittaker, which outlines the first three serials of the show, sends Verity Lambert a request for clarification about the specifics of this story. Will this seven-part adventure, currently entitled A Journey to Cathay, be recorded as the third serial after Anthony Coburn's Doctor Who and the Robots, a six-parter which is currently scheduled second? Is it being written to be recorded in Studio D, Lime Grove, and will it require the full five days pre-filming that it has been allotted? All of this information will be useful, says Ayton Whittaker, to ensure that we declare our service requirements as far in advance as possible. 15th of July Whittaker's questions have clearly yielded answers. According to the current information, A Journey to Cathay, which is described as a working title, We'll see its first episode recorded in the week before Christmas. However, Lime Grove Studio D looks likely to be out of commission in December, and so he asks for clarification, as this will have a bearing on what facilities will be available to the episode and may therefore have a bearing on its contents and therefore its writing. Pre-filming for the story is provisionally scheduled at Ealing Studios to take place from the 9th to the 13th of December. 18th of July. It has been suggested that A Journey to Cathay is to be directed by Waris Hussain, currently scheduled for the first story as well. At this point, the plan is that Hussain and Rex Tucker will direct alternate stories. It is hoped that the team will be able to produce the serial in Riverside Studio One, which would have allowed for a slightly more expansive journey than the BBC planners are ultimately going to allow for. 23rd of July. The story is now well and truly ensconced in the early shaping of the first year of the show, with television publicity organiser Richard Bright informing those who need to know that the first story will be set in the Paleolithic Age, the second will move forward to a world inhabited by robots, and the third will move back again to Marco Polo's Journey to Cathay. 31st of July. We have a transmission date for the serial. 18th of January 1964. As we shall see, though, this long journey involves several obstacles which necessitate a number of changes of plan. 1st of August. Some early publicity material for the show is circulated. The brief synopsis of Doctor Who and A Journey to Cathay says that The ship takes Doctor Who and his companions to the splendours and dangers of Cathay in the days of Marco Polo. And states that John Luca Rotti has previously written for American and Canadian television. 16th of September. David Whittaker issues a longer description of the story which is still third and to follow Coburn's six-part robots adventure. It will be followed by Robert Gould's minuscule story, then Terry Nation story set on a dead planet and after that six episodes by Malcolm Hulk set in Britain in 400 AD. Lucarotis Serial the third, which is In Preparation, is described thus. TARDIS now stops in the 12th century AD, and Doctor Who and his companions become involved with Marco Polo and one of his journeys on behalf of Kublai Khan. Polo is transporting a young girl to be given in marriage to one of the Khan's allies, an aged old man, to seal the alliance between the two rulers, although the girl is appalled at this prospect. Marco Polo decides to add TARDIS to the other strange and wonderful gifts he is taking, and Doctor Who and his friends are forced to join the caravan. Other factions are secretly working to promote war between Kubla Khan and his ally, and the travelers' defence of the ship, sympathy for the young girl, and admiration of Marco Polo inevitably involve them in an adventure of action and suspense. Those interested in such things might like to note that TARDIS is not in capital letters, it has no definite article and is in inverted commas in its synopsis for this story and indeed any other story bar the first set of episodes which find it capitalised and without the speech marks. Lucarotti has had trouble plotting and storylining the complex serial and so Whitaker has just told him to get on with it and write the scripts without a need for the breakdowns which have been holding him up. 27th of September The aim is for Lucarotti's scripts to arrive at the BBC. On the 7th or 8th of October in order to be ready for rehearsals so in need of only minor rewrites by the 18th of November. Initially there are only titles for the first four episodes. The BBC has committed £225 per episode for Lucarotti's work. The scripts have still not arrived. The story is currently intended to be the third serial in the run to be recorded now at Lime Grove Studio D from Friday the 10th of January for an 8th of February TV debut. 16th of October, BBC Head of programmes Donald Baverstock backtracks on the initial plan for Doctor Who to run for a year and elects to commit to just 13 weeks for the series. He has concerns about the show's budget and feasibility, especially in light of the expense of the TARDIS set. The current roster of three series scheduled does not fit into Bavastock's 13-week window. Four parts for the introduction and cavemen, seven parts for Nation and his Daleks, which have been brought forward and displaced Coburn's robots, and seven for Marco Polo means that something will need to be inserted in between the journeys to Scaro and Cathay. Bavastock's memo is really very late in the day, and the numbers he requires don't tally with what the team have ready to go, or even in reserve. And so Marco Polo will need to be bumped and bumped into a time period during which Doctor Who now has no guarantees that it will actually still be being made. 22nd of November. Donald Bavistock, after pressure from Donald Wilson, essentially greenlights Marco Polo when he confirms that Doctor Who, OK then, can have a second block of 13 episodes. Although even then, he's initially only fully committing to 20, so at one point it's figuratively possible that the journey with Marco Polo will be the series last. The story has been worked on via discussions between Lucarotti and Whitaker, but with Bavastock's reluctance to commit and the spaceship two-parter possibly being the show's last hurrah, they go through a period, Lucarotti and Whitaker, which ends today, of knowing that all of their labours might actually be in vain. 27th of November. Producer Verity Lambert celebrates her 27th birthday, pointed out here just in case you're still unsure just how young some of the movers and shakers behind the early series really were. 9th of December. Warris Hussain, assigned to direct the serial, celebrates his 25th birthday, just to re-emphasise the last point. 31st of December. Donald Baverstock who's ancient at 39, confirms that Doctor Who will now be allowed to run for 36 episodes. However, he has some observations about the show, which he feels needs to brighten up the logic and inventiveness of the scripts. He feels that the Doctor and Susan have appeared too helpless once outside the TARDIS, and Ian and Barbara too clever. With his eye on the story about to enter production, he notes, Any ordinary man of the mid-20th century returning to, say, the Marco Polo age could hardly help making assertions all the time which would sound to the 14th century Chinese or Venetians like mad, ludicrous prophecies. Likewise, the characters of the past and the future should also have appeared more strikingly and differently ingenious the one more often reminding us of lost simple knowledge, the other credible skills and capacities that can be conceived lightly in the future. He asks for a reduction in slow prosaic dialogue and that the dramatic movements centre more on historical and scientific hokum. 7th of January Donald Wilson sends Bavastock an outline of the next three Doctor Who stories in production. It's official. The new two-parter The Edge of Destruction will be followed by Marco Polo, which will be directed by Warris Hussain. However, Verity Lambert's position at the helm of Doctor Who is now not safe. Donald Wilson is developing a new series called Swizzlewick, which will be produced in Birmingham, and as Lambert is a young unmarried woman, it is felt not unreasonable that it should be she, of all the BBC's producers, who could easiest uproot and make the move. The dates of this aren't all totally clear, but certainly it all occurs in the early part of 1964, with Doctor Who's future far from certain and her being a woman at the BBC in the 1960s, Lambert is having to dig her heels in and fight the system and her superiors. 9th of January 1964. What Is Hussein is now scheduled to direct all seven episodes of the story. At an earlier point, it has been intended that novice Richard Martin, as he has done with the first Dalek story, should helm some instalments in order to give the main director a bit of breathing space. Martin's episodes were intended to be parts four and six. 10th of January Designer Barry Newbury's assistant, Derek Dodd, later to design Power of the Daleks and The Wheel in Space himself, Complete some design drawings for the Roof of the World, including the Rocky Plateau, which is a disguised ramp surrounded by flats. Sandbags covered with sawdust will give the illusion of snow. And the Mongolian Tent, which will reappear in three out of the next four episodes. Newbury has also researched the period extensively, a friend from the Department of Oriental Antiquities at the British Museum has referred him to The Ruins of Desert Cathay by Sir Oriel Stein from 1912 and he also consults Chinese and Indian architecture by Nelson I. Wu, a recent book, 1963, and Chinese Houses and Gardens by Henry In and S.C. Lee from 1940. 13th of January. Filming begins on the serial at Ealing Studios. The regular cast were originally required for this pre-filming, but only for a short montage sequence for The Roof of the World. However, as they are in the thick of rehearsals, for The Edge of Destruction, in which they are the sole cast members and so have plenty to do, the montage is removed in order not to give them extra work and travel during a full schedule just for a few seconds of screen time. 14th of January 1964 It is possible that the first use of a live animal in Doctor Who is recorded today. There's some confusion still as to whether the fish required for episode 5 were done yesterday or not. So I can't be 100% clear. I'm so sorry, live animals in Doctor Who aficionados. So let's say the first mammal, no, let's say the first non-human mammal, because somebody will write in, as a horse... Pulling a cart with the TARDIS atop it is filmed for a sequence for The Roof of the World today, and for later episodes too, with the snow replaced by other weather conditions for different journey stages. Hussain, hoping to achieve a great sense of scale with the serial, is disappointed he is only afforded one horse and one cart for this session. He films them multiple times going past the camera, as well as close-ups of feet, to use for footage to augment the map progression illustrations which will be superimposed over them. Two male extras are used as wagoners, both leading and atop the horse, with a female arm not belonging to Xenia Merton, who is yet to be cast and or contracted, is used to suggest Ping Cho's arm hanging out of the vehicle. 16th of January In a major change from the script, which sees the regulars providing the narration for various stages of the journey, whereas Hussain has decided to assign all of these moments to the story's eponymous character, and so Marco Polo is given all of the travelogue dialogue. This will be accompanied by a map and shots of Marco writing his journal, and today calligraphist John Woodcock's hand stands in for Mark Eden's as the traveller inks his journal. Woodcock has studied at the Royal College of Art and will later write a number of books on calligraphy. The first of these map sequences is for The Roof of the World, episode 1, and depicts the journey to Lop. Now although Eden does not provide his own hand, he is on hand today, recording his narration for these sequences. Eden has been asked to play Marco Polo, having been seen by Hussain at the Royal Shakespeare Company in 1962. Hussain wants a good looking hero type to give the character his requisite level of dash. Also at the filming this week, but for later episodes, is the serial's other guest star, playing the warlord Tigana, Devin Nesbit. Nesbit is actually the bigger name, and is therefore the highest paid member of the guest cast, equalled only by a veteran actor who joins in a later episode – tune in then – and caught Hussein's eye when he played a sadistic murderer in the 1961 film Victim, which was groundbreaking in its depiction of homosexuality. A busy actor, Nesbitt will appear in an episode of No Hiding Place just 11 days before The Roof of the World is broadcast. Eden and Nesbitt already know each other and like each other too, which helps in a production with such a fast turnaround. Also today a busy day for the story's production, the model shots of the TARDIS on the mountain, the opening moments of The Roof of the World, and the tent on the plateau later in the episode, are also recorded. 17th of January. An extra day's filming has been scheduled that was not originally planned in order to pick up incomplete sequences from earlier in the week, so some of what has been claimed about the filming schedule just recently in this podcast will never be 100% certain but the paperwork only enlightens us so far. Production assistant Douglas Camfield is heavily involved during this filming week, sometimes allowed to supervise sequences in the absence of Hussein, who is happy for his junior to take command when needed, because Camfield will not be an assistant for too much longer. 23rd of January 1964 Composer Tristram Carey has been hired to provide the score. This is recorded today, between 6pm and 10pm, by the Eddie Walker Ensemble, who perform on instruments including the flute, the alto flute, the harp and percussion. There is to be seven minutes and four seconds of music in The Roof of the World. 27th of January. The Roof of the World begins rehearsals at the Territorial Army Drill Hall, Uxbridge Road, London. Joining the regulars and the two illustrious guest stars who have already filmed some of their scenes for the serial is an actress who has not, in fact, done any television work at all, Xenia Merton, although she has done an eight-part film series for the Children's Film Foundation, which also had a science fiction flavour, 1962's Master of Venus. Merton had heard from a school friend that Hussein was after a genuine Oriental actress for the role of Ping Cho, but hadn't wanted to look in the usual places, namely the cast lists of the long-running West End show The World of Suzy Wong and the 1963 movie Fifty-Five Days at Peking. Merton had therefore visited Hussein at home and auditioned with a speech from Marco Polo, which she did well enough to secure this key role. She will learn a lot about making television – over the next few weeks, as we shall see. 31st of January The Roof of the World is rehearsed and recorded at Lime Grove Studio D. Camera rehearsal starts at 10.30am. Lunch is at 1pm and camera rehearsal is on again at 2pm. At 3.45pm, during the tea break, there is a photo call for publicity shots for the serial and then it's camera rehearsing again from 4.15pm to 7pm. Everyone Gets Ready After Dinner, which finishes at 8pm. The inexperienced Merton is surprised to find that not everyone tucks into the free food, filling herself up on the sweet and heavy pudding available, which then remains in her system for what turns out to be an agonising and unnecessarily sluggish evening's recording for her. That recording takes place between 8.30pm and 9.45pm, with the spotted dick and custard still weighing heavy on her system. Another lesson learned about making television. It's a happy production, though, with Hussein frequently inviting the cast and crew to his home for supper. 17th of February. In the run-up to the broadcast of the episode, the newspapers are still talking about the show. Michael Gowers of the Daily Mail asks, What is a connection between the BBC's Doctor Who and its Sunday serials of which Martin Chuzzlewit is the current offer? It is that both are deliberately deemed to beguile all age groups and the design has proved pretty successful from the BBC's point of view. At the moment, Doctor Who is hiccuping uncomfortably between adventures. Even so, he has managed to collar more than just the attention of the kids. 19th of February. The Bournemouth Echo runs a picture of Ford and Merton. In The Roof of the World, the Doctor Who episode on BBC TV on Saturday, The four travellers in time begin a new adventure, it says. They find themselves in Cathay in the 13th century, when the Empire of the Tatars is at its peak. Zelia Merton and Carol Ann Ford find a gap of seven centuries interesting. 20th of February. Another landmark. The very first Radio Times cover is afforded to Doctor Who. Not for the first serial, not for the dawn of the Daleks, but for this, an historical episode shown just once on British TV and then lost. To the chagrin of William Russell, who is moved to complain to his agent about it, only William Hartnell from the regular lineup features on the cover photo, which sees the Doctor in an image taken on the set of The Roof of the World alongside Eden and Nesbitt as Marco and Tigana. The cover blurb says. The four travellers in time and space return to Earth for a new adventure beginning on Saturday in television. The whole crew does feature inside on page 7 in the preview section, which features a photograph of them all at the way station with Eden, Nesbitt and Merton. The new adventure will be set on Earth, we are told. But not the comfortable settled Earth that the Doctor and Susan knew during their sojourn to the 20th century. This is Far Cathay, the fabled land of silks and spices, which we know as China. The time is the 13th century, and the empire of the fierce Tartars is at the peak of its power. The one-line descriptions accompanying the cast lists sometimes vary by region, but one example accompanying the roof of the world is... The TARDIS has landed on the roof of the world, but which world? And when? Which eagle-eyed readers who'd already stopped off at page seven, would know the answer to. But hey-ho. Also today, Mary Crozier laments in The Guardian that...
1: An intelligent child would hardly ever find anything to settle down to, and not one single good, exciting, imaginative serial made from a book. There is the amazing Doctor Who on Saturdays, it is true, and I find Doctor Who fascinating, but this is a new sci-fi thriller. I should have thought that one half hour a week, apart from Dickens, might have been given to a serial of a story, and it need not be a classic.
0: 21st of February. Various local newspapers in the Journal range, Bolton, Lee, Eccles and others, offer a preview of the serial which refers to the episode as the first in a seven-part story called A Journey to Cathay. A brief description of the events of the episode is given before the article concentrates on one of the guest stars. Xenia Merton, it tells us, is making her TV debut tomorrow night. Her background, Anglo-French father and Burmese mother, is given, as is her arrival in England six years earlier, to become a dancer before turning to acting.
1: I had my first professional part as a fairy at Regent's Park last season, she says. I played a weasel and a stoat in Toad of Toad Hall at the Comedy Theatre at Christmas. I am very excited at the idea of playing a Chinese bride in this television series.
0: 22nd of February. During the week, the serial is quite heavily promoted. A number of papers run a short, descriptive caption underneath a photograph of Polo with his arms folded, back to a serious-looking doctor, although some choose the picture of Susan and Ping Cho. The Birkenhead news and advertiser, however, prefers to concentrate on the baddie with a shot of Tigana and the man at lop. To coincide with the broadcast, Carol Ann Ford features in the Daily Mirror, pictured with her three-year-old daughter, Miranda. Eight million viewers will recognise Carol Ann Ford, says the piece, the petite five-foot-one-and-three-quarter-inches actress who plays 15-year-old Susan Foreman. The series, though, has brought Carol a problem, whether to let her three-year-old daughter Miranda watch.
1: She was scared the first week, but only because I looked worried and unhappy. Now I act out the whole story beforehand and everything's fine.
0: The Daily Sketch has decided to focus on Xenia Merton. Like much of the other coverage, it gives her background. But the Daily Sketch adds that she looks a lot more attractive than some of the other outer space creatures Doctor Who has been mixing with recently. Just in case you'd forgotten, we're currently in the 1960s. John Chelsfield, previewing the episode in the Liverpool Post, describes the series as the BBC's Sunday Spellbinder. He tells readers that This started off some weeks ago as a serial for children of all ages. As far as I can gather, there is no upper age limit. It has children enthralled from four years to four score years. I doubt whether any children's programme has ever beguiled more adult viewers. And because a lot of mums and dads might be just a little reluctant to admit that they get quite a kick out of the comic caper adventures of an old man flying around in time and space in a spaceship which looks like a police call box, they come in the sneak viewing category. A sneak viewer, he has established elsewhere in the article, is someone who watches a programme with heavily concealed enjoyment while keeping up a bare-faced pretense for the benefit of all other fellows, that he never looks at that kind of programme at all. Bill Johnson in the Glasgow Evening Citizen also refers to Doctor Who's growing adult audience, attributing the presence of grown-ups to the football results transmitted immediately prior. He too highlights Merton's background and TV debut, as well as giving a taster to the events of the episode. In the shadows of all these column inches, The Roof of the World is broadcast on BBC television at 5.15pm. Its 9.4 million viewers, 33rd in the charts, signify a drop of nearly half a million from the previous week. But the appreciation figure of 63 is an improvement, matching the score of the very first episode of the series and four episodes from the Dalek story indeed it is the most often attained score at present beaten only by the 65 attained by the final episode of the Daleks 26th of February the BBC's internal program review board notes that there are several appreciative notes on Doctor Who 28th of February Cyclops the television reviewer for the television mail observes that Doctor Who is an undoubted winner which to use a familiar quotation is Keeps children from their play, and old men from their chimney corner. The What Elements from the script inspired by the diaries of Marco Polo include the name Tigana, a Tartar baron mentioned very briefly. Marco's observations about the cold on the mountainside, robbing flames of their heat, and his claim to have seen miracles performed by Buddhist monks at the Khan's court. William Hartnell has a slightly modified wig from this week on, which is a better fit. Many of the costumes selected by costume designer Daphne Dare come from the famous theatrical suppliers Burmans and are thus from other, earlier and probably more expensive Productions. Susan's second line of the whole episode, when she asks Ian what he makes of the footprint in the snow, has been put in very late in the day and it doesn't even appear in the camera script. The doctor's response in the script to Susan's asking him about the footprint is That? I'm afraid I'm not impressed. My only concern is to leave here. I've got some work to do. This becomes, whether by accident or design, Or a bit of both. That? Oh, I can't see anything without my glasses. Anyway, I don't like this place. You'll have to excuse me, I've got a lot of work to do first. The travelling companion's exchange about whether they're on the Alps or the Andes is a late addition to the camera script. The bit that has always been there has Susan describing this as the top, not the roof, of the world. Ian's reply, in which he also cites the episode title, also does not In the script have him saying the episode's title. Obviously it was decided to emphasize this a bit more in the final product. In the episode this observation also leads Ian to muse whether they are on Earth. I wonder, he says, if only, which adds a bit of yearning absent from the camera script. The Doctor emerging from the TARDIS is in the script, but his gloriously grumpy observation that they're always in trouble is not. The Doctor's line about the loss of the lights in the ship affecting the water supply is also a late addition. The lights were always to be malfunctioning, but the contrived knock-on effect of this affecting the water – as far as I'm aware, whenever my light bulbs blow, my taps still work – seems to have been put in there to help with next week's lack of water storyline. Ian's reaction to the Doctor's line has therefore been amended accordingly. The mountain scenes are all backed by a wind sound effect from the BBC Library. The special sounds section of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop hasn't supplied any specially made cues for the show this week. The Doctor sends Susan to the TARDIS for the 2LO. You know what it is, he tells her, and so he doesn't have to explain it to us. So there's another mystery. What is the 2LO? It will take him days to repair it, and it's something to do with the broken lights. But otherwise, we're not told exactly. Ian's urgency in these scenes is accentuated by him fretting about daylight running out, but these references have gone from the script. Presumably, William Russell questioned how Chesterton would know when it would be night time, seeing as they are in a new location and have only just arrived, so don't actually know what time it is. When Barbara sees the Mongol in the snow, the script stipulates that he is so wrapped up in furs that it is difficult to discern if he is human or not, taking advantage of the fact that the viewer still doesn't really know if this is a science fiction story or not, unless they've read the Radio Times, but not everybody has. One of the flats used to represent the snowy plateau has been in the programme before. The 12 by 10 foot piece of scenery decorated with sculptured Jabalite rock formations, made up part of the Cave of Skulls during the fight between Cal and Zar in the final episode of the very first story. It just goes to show it isn't what you know, it's who you know. This isn't the only bit of recycling slash set nepotism either. One of the mountains in one of the model shots was last seen representing the peaks looming over the Dalek city on Skaro, which were based on the Alps, the Alps as mentioned in that late script edition mentioned earlier. More of the Doctor's fretting, including the line, Oh, I don't know, I'm always in the... is an ad-lib, and it intrigues us to the lovely possibility that we can entertain ourselves with, should we choose, that had Ian not arrived in time, we might have had our hero saying, I'm always in the... what? Not for the first time this week, Hartnell does a lot of wandering off muttering, Hartnell providing his own sotto voce griping. When the characters exit the plateau after Barbara and Susan have wondered who Marco is, there is a recording break in order to give everyone time to set up in the tent. The tent is described in the script as having a slopping roof, but presumably designer Newbery wasn't influenced by this rather grim-sounding typo. When the Doctor introduces the crew and refers to Ian as Charlton this is a change, reflecting the dynamic of the crew and the developing gag of the old man getting his younger companion's name wrong. In the script it was Ian who was to do the introductions. Susan was to say hello to Ping Cho before Barbara's line about Shang Tu being in China and the girl was to respond with a silent joined hands and bowed greeting, but this is cut, presumably to maintain the flow of the scene and because Susan and Ping Cho get plenty of bonding time elsewhere. The script makes a point of illustrating that China was, in Polo's time, called Cathay. He has not heard of China. However, there is no consistency with the place names. Peking is also an anachronism. It would have been called Kanbalik in 1292, whilst the Gobi Desert would be the Desert of Lop. Ian gets to name-check the roof of the world in Marco's tent, whilst the Doctor repeats the name of the year, 1289, but in the script it is the other way round, Ian clearly lamenting being out of time again. The change, well, that might have been to do with blocking or actor preference, who knows. The second recording break is to give Mark Eden time to get back to the plateau set after he has listened to Tigana's suspicions about the travellers in the tent. A fade to black occurs between these two scenes to emphasise the passage of time. We're back at the plateau the following morning, which also serves as a possible spot for an advert break during foreign screenings. When the Doctor tells Ping Cho he is surprised to find her working as a servant for Marco Polo, it is a mistake. He's doing a forward echo of her reply about being pleased to serve. He's supposed to be surprised that she's Marco's cook not servant, which leads to the dialogue about the actual Cook and, indeed, Tigana. But Xenia Merton carries on regardless, despite Hartwell's mistake, and so the scene carries on smoothly, if without the actual sense that was intended by the writer. The film sequence of Marco's Diary and the Caravan with the TARDIS gives everyone time to relocate to the way station set. The design work greets new friends as well as old. Indeed, the TARDIS seen outside the doorway is a photo blow-up the first time such a thing has ever been used in Doctor Who to represent the TARDIS, in order to save time and energy transporting the heavy police box prop from where it has landed on the raised set of the Plain of Pamir. One element considered was the observation from Barry Newbury that it was customary in 1292 for each way station to have a vessel containing cumis, a mare's milk drunk by the Chinese. Outside, visitors would, as a habit, push the plunger down before entering and after leaving the building in order to stimulate the drink's fermentation, like a kind of 13th century yakult, stirring up those gut-beneficial probiotics. But Waris Hussain felt the business would get in the way of the drama, so alash, no one takes the historical version of the Actimel challenge between games of chess and sword fighting. Although, as is the norm at the time, Caucasian actors, in this case Darren Nesbitt and Leslie Bates, under makeup, are called upon to play East Asian characters, director Warris Hussain, as well as working hard to ensure the authenticity in the casting of Ping Cho, fills the background with the real deal, sourcing many of his extras from Mr. Cum's, to use the parlance of the time, Oriental Casting Agency. Mr. Cum is Christopher Cum. Who will, some years later, actually appear in Doctor Who himself as Mr Fu Peng in The Mind of Evil. The male extras include Clem Choi, Ronald Chee and John Lee, not the actor we've just seen in The Daleks with the same name, inexplicably suddenly doing extra work and becoming Chinese three weeks after a starring role in The Daleks, despite what some silly books and internet sites have suggested. As for the women, they include a character described as a Chinese lady of quality played by Violet Leon, whose DNA finds itself in the world of modern Doctor Who, even if only by a trace, as she is the future great aunt of current Doctor Who magazine editor Peter Ware. Basil Tang, who is due to appear in this episode as one of the Mongol warriors, is replaced by Clem Choi, and we will encounter Tang later in the story, in the speaking role of the office foreman in episode 6. In this episode there is also a non-speaking character who gets a name, Yang of the first waystation, who is played by O. Aikida. Marco was supposed to tell the Doctor that the Khan has several waystations built at regular intervals, but a little stumble and Mark Eden's use of the rather more modern word, dotted, suggests a slight slip from him here. The Doctor, when talking to Polo about repairing the TARDIS, does not use the definite article in the script. Now, look, we don't point out every minor alteration to a word or phrasing, but this one is interesting, as often publicity material does the same. It is not set in stone that what modern viewers will come to know as the TARDIS is referred to quite that way just yet. When Barbara tells Polo she knows he will see Venice again, in the script he says, I intend to. But this line is gone come recording. After he has said that the TARDIS will make the Khan more powerful than Alexander the Great, the lines between him and Ian before he leaves are new. He was, in the script, to respond to the Doctor, saying, laugh if you will, before carrying on as per the episode. But this interaction in the script has been changed to him responding to Ian's interjection, which is new, not the Doctor's laughter. Interestingly, the script intends the Doctor to be suddenly serious when he tells his friends he hasn't the faintest idea what they will do, but Hartnell decides to play this bit as if he's giggling like he has done for most of the scene prior. So in the script, the laughter is a front, almost, whereas this slight interpretive tweak from Hartnell makes it a slightly battier, less deliberate response. Lucarotti knows his medium. Of the alleyway at lop, he says in the script, this set need be no more than a flat, and the production team oblige. Darren Nesbit has refined his final speech, making it a bit more colloquial and emphasising a few key areas, but notably changing Tigana's reference to the present for Noghai that will bring Kubla Khan to his knees, to the much more evocative, the thing of magic that will bring, etc. The cliffhanger between Tagana and The Man at Lop is re-recorded after the episode is done, in order to have a titleless version of it for use in the opening of next week's episode. This is ultimately not used, presumably in order to avoid paying Leslie Bates for appearing again when his character in the reprise is not required to speak. In the cast list on the camera script, Man at Lop is actually credited as Man in Alleyway. The Who. Mark Eden. Douglas John Mallin was born on the 14th of February 1928, the second child of painter and decorator Charles Mallin and his wife Emma, known as Mag. The Catholic family lived in abject poverty. Charles was frequently unemployed in a two roomed St Pancras flat with no running water and no sink. Young Douglas. Got his first taste of public performance when forced by his mother to be an altar boy for Sunday masses at his local church. Entertainment came from a gramophone at home and, in 1937, a gift to the family of a wireless. He did his first acting at St Aloysius High School in Highgate, one line as fourth townsperson in the Pied Piper of Hamlin, but he was unable to take advantage of a scholarship to Brompton Oratory in Kensington because the family couldn't afford the uniform or travel. Things began to look up in 1939 as Charles started to work regularly and thanks to the arrival of child number four, the family got a council flat in NW5. Douglas and his brother Charlie were evacuated during the war to Rushton near Kettering where they were housed first by a kind but increasingly infirm elderly couple and then at a vicarage where they were treated like servants by a sadistic vicar's wife until their father came and rescued them. Their street was bombed and the flat rendered uninhabitable in an air raid and so he was evacuated again, this time to South Normanton in Derbyshire, which was a happier experience for young Douglas. Back at the family's now repaired London flat, he returned to St Aloysius School to see out the rest of his education. As a working-class boy who'd been taught to read and write, it was deemed perfectly acceptable that the system dispensed with him aged just 14. And so, propelled by his mother, he joined the post office as a telegram boy and thereafter worked as variously a labourer, tailor's underpresser and reel packer for a film distributor. His brother Eddie had served in the Middle East and when he returned from the war, shared a room with Douglas and gave him the tuberculosis that he had, unbeknownst to him, caught there. TB sufferers were immediately quarantined. It was contagious and there was no cure, and so Douglas spent two years in a sanatorium. Intrigued by the crossword puzzles of a fellow patient, a kind teacher, Douglas was encouraged by the man to study the dictionary and thesaurus and to acquaint himself with a hitherto undiscovered world of great literature from the man's collection and the hospital library. With time on his hands, Douglas soaked it all in eventually becoming librarian of the ward, which also helped his self-confidence. Eddie, sadly, was more seriously afflicted than Douglas, and he died aged just 23, which made Douglas decide to make the most of the life that had been given to him. Returned to health, he went to work at Dreamland Park Funfair in Margate, where there was a kind of show business thanks to the amusement park sideshows. He spent summer seasons there for the next few years, and in 1952 met and married, in secret, after a short but heady union, Joan Long. They were living quite frugally when Joan became pregnant, even though the marriage was already on the rocks. At around this time, Douglas joined the local Amateur Dramatic Society to give himself something to do in the winter months between seasons. He was immediately offered a huge part in The Ladies Not For Turning, and would have declined but for Joan's encouragement. This set his life on a new course, and come curtain call of the successful first night, he knew he wanted to be a professional actor. With Joan's blessing, he headed for London. The marriage was all but over, despite the arrival of son David, and he fastidiously answered advertisements in the industry newspaper The Stage. He had already decided to change his name. He felt the Malin family had never had much luck and the name itself was a derivation of malignant. He'd always liked the name Mark and ex-Prime Minister Anthony Eden was in the papers. A change of name then would hopefully bring a change of fortune. And it did. His application to be an assistant stage manager at the Grand Theatre Swansea on £7 a week was successful and Mark Eden, actor, well actually ASM for now, was born in February 1958, a week before Douglas Mallin's 30th birthday. After Swansea, he conned his way into being hired as a juvenile lead, even though he'd done no acting actually at Swansea, at the Grand Theatre Landudno, finishing his four-month run having done 16 different plays, gaining invaluable experience and the courage to court a top agent who took him on. And immediately secured him his TV debut as a reporter in the seminal BBC science fiction serial, Quatermass in the Pit. He then won the strong part of Marco in a major UK tour of the then fairly new play Arthur Miller's A View from the Bridge, a professional success which was sadly preceded by the end of his marriage to Joan. They remained good friends however and she eventually became Joan Le Mejure, wife of John of Dad's Army fame. Mark then made his West End debut, two shows in quick succession, an Agatha Christie and a knockabout comedy, neither successful but an important notch on the CV. He needed a big break and got it when the Richmond Theatre mounted a production of The Long, The Short and The Tall, Willis Hall's wartime play that had recently wowed the Royal Court and West End. Eden was cast in the senior role of Sergeant Mitcham, and the then up and coming cast also included Terence Stamp, Jack Smethurst, and a fellow called David Barron, who would soon become Harold Pinter. This led to Eden being cast in the prestigious Wesker trilogy, playing the lead role in the third piece, at the Royal Court, no less. And he was on his way, immediately securing a lead in a TV armchair theatre once the play was finished. In 1962, he was in the film The L-Shaped Room, and then the Royal Shakespeare Company asked him to perform in A Penny for a Song, which is where he was spotted by Warris Hussain and so later offered the role of Marco Polo in Doctor Who, which he subsequently declared to be among the most enjoyable jobs he ever did. He had been offered the chance to join the RSC full-time by Peter Hall, but felt a better and more secure future lay in film and television, and so he declined. He had a good part in the multi-award-nominated film Seance on a Wet Afternoon, directed by Brian Forbes in 1964. He'd done plenty of TV since his 1958 debut, but that year's catch-hand was his first real series lead, co-starring with Anthony Booth in a series about a pair of builders looking for work. Booth was tricky, but they got on well enough, perhaps because tricky was an understatement when it came to Dorothy Squires, the whirlwind of a Welsh singer and ex-wife of Roger Moore, who was 13 years Eden's senior. An unlikely duo, they nonetheless engaged in a tempestuous relationship. Days with Booth then, perhaps, were more manageable than nights with Squires. He worked opposite Alec Guinness in Doctor Zhivago in 1965, though one of his scenes ended up being cut. On stage though, the male lead in Tennessee Williams Knight of the Iguana, opposite Sean Phillips, found him receiving a claim in person from the author himself. And so film fame came knocking. Cast in the movie The Fighting Prince of Donegal, in which he would be third billed and, upon completion, the recipient of a three-year exclusive contract with Disney, he broke his foot on the third day of filming and had to be replaced by Tom Adams, later Commander Vorschach in Warriors of the Deep. Eden spent three months in plaster and getting plastered with his mates, actors Tom Bell and Tony Booth, neither famed for their sobriety, and later felt that this interruption to the upward momentum of his career meant it never quite got back on the same track. His new course, when recovered, found him on a film that was a winner, as in Michael, who directed I'll Never Forget What's His Name, and then it was a job with another mercurial, tricky customer, Patrick McGowan. Who created The Prisoner and, with the episode It's Your Funeral, organised a Marco Polo reunion, as the episode's guest stars were Mark, Darren Nesbitt and Martin Miller, Marco Polo's Kubla Khan. Patrick McGowan's disinclination to throw his punches meant the fight scene Mark's character and McGowan's number six undertook was not a terribly comfortable one for the guest actor. 1968 was a good year, probably with fewer bruises, with The Curse of the Crimson Altar with Boris Karloff and Attack on the Iron Coast with Lloyd Bridges keeping him visible in the cinema whilst the lead in ATV series Crime Buster kept him a familiar face to TV viewers and he was set to end the decade on a high were it not for an incompetent accountant who left him owing the inland revenue too much money and he was thus declared bankrupt. The 1970s started promisingly enough With a relationship with Diana Smith, 18 years his junior, with whom he had a daughter, Polly, Diana already had a son, Saul, and Mark and Diana married in 1973. Best man? Unstoff from the Rebos operation. He was cast as Chief Inspector Parker opposite Ian Carmichael's Lord Peter Whimsey, had another regular role opposite David Jason in The Secret Life of Edgar Briggs, And was Jack Rufus in London Belongs to Me which meant he had plenty of TV runs alongside the plethora of guest turns you'd expect from a well-known TV face of that decade. He also spent three months in Tunisia getting bored on the set of Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth in 1976. The 80s began with the key role of George in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, opposite Hollywood legend Gloria Graham for David Thacker at the Duke's Theatre Lancaster, and then there was more of the same TV-wise, The Sandbaggers, The Professionals et al., until 1985, when he had a regular stint in The Practice and The Detective, the latter opposite his old mate Tom Bell. By this time, though, sadly, his marriage to Diana was over. But having played a character called Wally Randall, Who had a fling with elsie tanner for a short stint in 1981 in 1986 he was back on the cobbles of coronation street this time as alan bradley by happy coincidence his new partner the actress sue nichols had after years of intermittent appearances become a regular on the show the year before alan bradley started life as a character with a mysterious past But after a brief sabbatical, during which he toured the world playing Claudius in Hamlet for John Fraser's London Shakespeare group, he found the character becoming more and more unpleasant, leading to him being the Sun newspaper's Britain's biggest rat in 1988. 27 million viewers watched him attempt to murder his other half, Barbara Knox's Rita Fairclough, and it was not unknown for the old ladies of Manchester to thwack Mark on the head with their umbrellas if they saw him walking around the city. Bradley's beating of Rita was praised for its realism and used by anti-violence charities to illustrate the kinds of things that occur behind closed doors. So well did the two actors pull off the harrowing scenes. Bradley and Mark Eden returned to the show some months later to play out the rest of the storyline after Bradley's all-too-short stint in prison. This time, his methods were psychological abuse and the scenes were no less effective. But ultimately, the character met his doom, famously being hit by a tram whilst chasing his victim. It's one of the most memorable soap moments of all time. Nearly 27 million people watched. In 1993, Mark and Sue got married in a very low-key and informal ceremony. Unstoff was there again, though. Mark was to outlive David, his son, who died in 2017, aged just 59, but David's daughter carries on the family tradition. Emma Griffith-Smallin is also in the acting profession and her credits include the 1997 Adrian Lyne film of Lolita and the TV series Poirot, Marple and Wallander. Mark's involvement with Doctor Who came full circle when he played Donald Bavastock in the 2013 TV film An Adventure in Space and Time, which was to be... His last screen role. After a steady decline into dementia, Mark Eden died on the 1st of January 2021 at the age of 92. Sue survives him, as do a daughter and stepson, from his first marriage. He used to ruefully observe, who's going to want to watch you, which was a phrase his mother used to suggest that he had ideas above his station, wanting to become an actor. At the end of his life, he observed that about 50 million people had ended up watching him. Leslie Bates This is Leslie Bates' first credit on an episode of Doctor Who, even though it's not his first brush with the series. Bates, who this week has one line as man at lop at the end of the episode, was actually the first human... To record any on-screen material in Doctor Who, even if he was standing off-camera when he played the Shadow of Cal that falls over the TARDIS at the end of An Unearthly Child, essentially standing in for Jeremy Young in order not to have to pay him for being a shadow of his future self. In A Reversal of Fortune, because Man at Lop appears in episode 2 of Marco Polo but doesn't say anything, it becomes Bates's turn to be replaced himself by a stand-in in order to save a few quid next week. And whilst he played a background tribesman in other episodes of The Caveman Story, his only other credited role in Doctor Who was as second guard in the massacre. But he turns up in the show many times over the years, from now until The Invisible Enemy, giving his final turn in the series as a By-Al member. You can easily make him out as one of the two soldiers, he's the brown-haired one, behind the Brigadier and Benton as they do their best to persuade us that they are on the Welsh mountainside and not a CSO backdrop in the latter stages of the Green Death. Bates's nickname, according to fellow extra Derek Martin, was Master, for reasons that I don't need to explain on a family podcast and as an example of the sense of humour often exhibited by the acting profession. Bates had graduated from the London School of Dramatic Art in 1954, winning the Beryl Cook Prize for his final showcase. He went into rep, performing for the Fraser Neal Festival Players in Carlisle, in a company that included future Doctor Who producer Derek Sherwin and the actor Ian Richardson, but thereafter it's fair to say that Bates spent most of his working life as an uncredited supporting artiste on television. He turned up in many episodes of May Gray, Dixon of Doc Green, Moonbase 3 and Zed Cars, playing different non-speaking roles, although in the latter he was also the voice of control. He got the occasional line and credit over the years, in an episode of 1966's Quick Before They Catch Us, directed by Paddy Russell, and in the occasional Dixon. His full list of Doctor Who credits is Shadow and Tribesman in An Unearthly Child, Man at Lop and Uncredited Mongol Bandit in Marco Polo, Second Guard in the Massacre, Villager and Pirate in the Smugglers, an English Soldier in the Highlanders, an IE Guard in the Invasion, various Soldiers in the War Games, a Waxworks Visitor in Spearhead from Space, part of the BBC Three Unit in The Demons, a Unit Soldier in The Three Doctors, a Lunar Guard, a Draconian and a General Williams Guard in Frontier in Space, a Unit Soldier in The Green Death, an Exelon in Death to the Daleks, a guard in Planet of the Spiders, a Time Lord in The Deadly Assassin, and, as mentioned before, a by Al member in The Invisible Enemy. He worked a lot with fellow ubiquitous supporting artist Steve Ismay, who recalls, ''Ah, uh, we all knew Les. All I can say about Les is he was a smashing, honest guy. I knew him for 20 years and spent a lot of time with him and his family, all happy people. He was a very hard-working guy. He bought a house in Bethnal Green which had a fire and he fixed it all himself. He was very badly burnt but he was always happy no matter what. A great guy named one of his sons after me. Shitlegs. legs. Nah, Steve. And that's Steve all over. Leslie Bates died in 2014 survived by his wife Joyce. And so ends another episode of Doctor Who. The first broadcast episode Of which no footage remains. Remember, the first episode of The Daleks was recorded twice, so the unbroadcast go at that is the earliest made episode that we do not actually have. 14 weeks in and the travellers have already been pitched into the abyss of oblivion, which doubtless would have been an episode title for story 3 had it carried on much longer. Once again the TARDIS is a bit damaged, this time the lights and heating and water, so actually something about it, the ship, has broken in every story so far even if the malfunction in the Dalek story was the result of sabotage by its owner. But the fact is it doesn't work. Otherwise, the implication being they'd be off at the first sign of trouble. Unlike a certain young English rose in March 2006, no one is quite ready yet to run towards adventure. And the TARDIS represents safety or warmth, water, shelter, except when it breaks, as it does here. And the initial driver for the story is that the Doctor needs to be given time to perform repairs, which will restore the box to its status of sanctuary. How frustrating! We cannot see what looks to have been a pretty impressive production, particularly on the design front. Mark Eden makes for a dependable hero, and Darren Nesbitt, fortunately for 21st century viewers and listeners, opts to make Tigana out of purred villainy, rather than any attempt at a mongol accent if we could see the episode we might be more uneasy for sure although nesbit's makeup is very good and transformative if you know him as the blonde haired blue-eyed nazi playboy type he often gave and the supporting artists are largely of genuine east asian appearance small comfort to modern sensibilities sure but some and for modern listeners it's de rigueur for this sort of thing to be highlighted even though it's pretty obvious so highlighted i have Susan teaches Ping Cho the word fab and explicitly states that she is 16. There's a genuine friendship beginning to develop between the two of them and the first sign that these supporting characters from this story will become near regular cast members for the next month and a half in a story that takes place over one of the longest periods of real time ever featured in a classic Doctor Who serial. A period of real time and immense travel, with the travel part narrated over By the titular hero, again emphasising how this is the story of more people than just the regulars. And what a lovely thing it is, Marco's narration, that gives this story another unique element and shows how experimental the show's presentation was from story to story. So far this series, we have had grimy, scary, out-of-time adventuring, a weird and perilous escapade with robotic aliens and a warning about nuclear holocaust, and an unsettling mood piece full of beguiling oddness. But now we have an educational, lyrical journey which tantalises us with the possibility of aliens but is in fact an adventure in pure history. The safety of the TARDIS is taken away and so the travellers now just have their wits and, crucially, their ability to make friends and to prove their trustworthiness. To guide them on this journey to Cathay. And on this journey, The first thing that happens is that their usual mode of transport is taken away from them. By the good guy. Oh, and... I think the sun's rays will dispel the shadows from your mind. Doctor Who. The Roof of the World. Featured Leslie Bates as Man at Lop. The title music was by Ron Grainer and the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. The incidental music by Tristram Carey. The story editor was David Whittaker. The designer, Barry Newbury. And the associate producer was Mervyn Pinfield. Coming next. A sandstorm in a BBC studio. Tigana turns up the heat and... Oh, the leading man is suddenly not very available. So what can they do? Well, like the travellers on their perilous journey. They take it in their stride and improvise their way out of trouble. That's next time on Doctor Who Too Much Information. Next episode, The Singing Sands. Or, is the Doctor a Little Horse? Too Much Information, The Roof of the World, was written and presented by me, Toby Haydoke. With thanks to Richard Bignall, David Brunt, Peter Crocker, Steve Ismay, Graham Kibble-White, Peter Ware, Rhys Williams and Warris Hussain. The series consultant is Richard Bignall, and the music for these podcasts has been specially composed by Wayne Shepherd. I would like to dedicate this edition to patron, podcast guest and venerable enthusiast, perhaps the original, you might say, Ian K. McLachlan, whose death was announced as this episode went into production. He was a lovely fellow and he adored Doctor Who, especially these 60s episodes. There is a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, called Far Too Much Information that is for now exclusive to patrons who also qualify for bonus material, early releases and other exclusives as well as pictures of my dog Patrons are also nearly six months ahead with my Happy Times and Places podcast so if you want to hear esteemed science fiction journalist Steve O'Brien eulogise Black Orchid or full circle writer Andrew Smith get all misty-eyed about The Dominators then nip over to patreon.com forward slash (laughs) tobyhaydoke References most of the information herein, as with every too much information, comes from going back to source and sifting through the original scripts and paperwork, which have been shared with me by various people. You know who you are, and thank you. Patrick Mulkern wrote three of the best research articles about a particular story, going into detail by poring over paperwork with the story's director, Waris Hussain, over three issues in Doctor Who magazine from issue 483 in 2015, which give a real insight into the making of Marco Polo. I'm also indebted to the broadcast.org website and its never-before-unearthed details about John Lucarotti's first go at Marco Polo. Richard Bignall has kindly provided interview material with some key players. He provides anything you ask for, actually, and offers it even if you don't ask. Legend. As is Rhys Williams, who has been very forthcoming with very helpful materials. And as usual, I've consulted various reference works for this podcast. They include Doctor Who, A Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth and Mark Wright, with contributions from Jonathan Morris, Alistair McGowan, and Richard Atkinson, and much of it based, of course, on those fantastic archives features originally done by Andrew Pixley, the Doyen. How Stammers and Walker's The Sixties and The First Doctor Handbook are both excellent and uncovered much of what we now take for granted, ditto J. Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who The Early Years. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's complete history of time travel have also been very very valuable for quick handy reference and I also subscribe to the British newspaper archive Ancestry.com and Newspapers.com which are vital resources but also places are very easy to get lost in for several days, so proceed with caution. I walk in the shadows of giants, albeit giants who probably turn out to leave just a human-sized footprint. I would also like to thank the patrons who make these podcasts possible, and they include Ruben Herfindahl, Stephen Moffat, Paul Hayes, Legion Henderson, Chris Fone, Peter Harness, Ronald Hayden, Rob Leonard, Christopher Meredith, Richard Straw, Neil Tate, Nick Tedston, Luke Adkins, Peter Adamson, John Arnold, Kevin Ashelford, James Bell, David Bickley, Will Brooks, Rick Byatt Gary Byrne, Robin Bland, Alex Kafajoglu, Paul Carnahan, Andy Case, John Curley, Mark Dakin, John Ellidge, Sam Esterem, Gary Gillett, James Gould, Lisa C. Greco, David Green, Fraser Gregory, Paul Gregory, Dave Hoskin, Richie Howarth, Andrew Jordan, Ashley Knight, Clive Lewis, Guy Lambert, James Lark, Gavin McLean, David Matthewman, Jason Mayo, John McClay, Russell McPhillips and Stephen. he doesn't want you to know his surname, the shame attached to association with patronage, I tell you, shame. Does not really, and thanks. you like a bit of shame I know some people who do in which case that's the reason you could sign up to become a patron but you know if you also are shame averse and just like supporting independent solo produced Doctor Who content which is what this is uh, then please go to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke uh, they enable me to give some proper time to record these on good equipment edit them properly pay the musicians pay the actors and uh, not have Advertising. You are, are, and here's a delve into the paperwork of Marco Polo. Men, are you skinny? Um, you know, none of that. So, I mean, I will keep them ad free, but uh, uh, the patrons justify that ludicrously uncommercial choice of mine. Patreon.com forward slash Toby Hedrick starts from as little as three pounds a month, and if you sign up for a year. In one go, you get a 10% discount, but the tiers go all the way up. Most things are available at the lowest tier. I don't like the idea of withholding anything from anybody, but I have to play the game. So there are a couple of things as you ascend further up the ladder. However, the bonus material, the exclusives, in fact, all of the material produced is at that lowest entry level, £3. And you get uh, advanced releases, uh, patron exclusives, AMAs photos stuff from my archive and you're six months ahead as I mentioned before with happy times and places and probably about a month maybe six weeks ahead with indefinable magic maybe a couple of months ahead with too much information it depends i wish i had a system there's also far too much information which you only get if you are a patron so patron.com forward slash toby haydoke if you want to go to kofi.com forward slash toby haydoke you get no bonuses at all but uh, there's also no commitment. It just means you can throw a few pennies into my hat as you're going by, if you fancy. Sometimes you will, sometimes you won't, and that is fair enough. And you know what? Not paying anything is fair enough. The cost of living is absolutely ludicrous at the moment, and it looks set to get worse. And, uh, you know, solidarity, folks. So if, for whatever reason, this stuff makes your journey to work or uh, your time pass... Uh, in a way that you need now because you've got less Redis to spend on the sort of entertainment you usually have. Whatever. I'm delighted. I'm delighted that my voice is in your ears and that you've taken the trouble to bestow your precious time on my waffling. So look thank you and I hope you like it. You know that's the reason I do it. I don't do it because I like doing it. I'm currently in a in a sound booth that's really hot uh, and I keep stumbling over my words and having to redo it uh, and there'll be bits that I hate when I have put it together and I'll eventually you know re-edit chop and change a couple of bits that i'm not happy with and then i'll put it out And then i'll realize i've forgotten to change that repeated word or that slight stumble uh, and i'll hate myself even more so honestly <laughs> i i hope that this is less painful for you than it is for me so you know thanks thanks for listening as i say thanks for giving me a reason to do it other than self-punishment and flagellation <laughs> But what you could do that costs nothing is go to iTunes, go to Podbean, go to anywhere on the internet, Spotify. I don't know if you can rate things on Spotify, but give these five stars. That really, really helps tickle the algorithms and it helps to make other people aware of these. Uh, And if you say nice things on social media, again, that just brings traffic in the direction of these pieces, which I hope, you know, other people who aren't yet listening to them might like. And if you've stumbled upon them for the first time and enjoyed them, please tell your friends, either by word of mouth or cyber typing. Okay, I think that's probably long enough. (laughs) But uh, yeah, thanks for your support uh, in whatever shape it comes. Even a footprint in the snow outside my door. No, actually, no. I, I mean, I love you, but don't. Don't leave any footprints in the snow outside my door. That would make me feel stalked. I'm a comedian as well. You can come and see me at Excess Malarkey Comedy Club every Tuesday in Manchester. And uh, that comedy club has a Twitter feed at Excess Malarkey and a Twitch channel, twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey, where there's a bank of performances that we did during lockdown when our stage was denied to us, but we carried on anyway because the show goes on and go on. It did all through lockdown. And we got comedians from around the world and we put selected highlights on twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey But if you've got friends in Manchester In the United Kingdom 8pm Excess Malarkey every Tuesday Come and see us and these podcasts have their own Twitter feed at Hadoke hey Podcasts, and I'm there as well at Toby Haydoke. Although I've just removed Twitter from my phone because it was doing my head in. So hopefully that'll do me and you some good. I mean, I, I'm, as I say, I'm still on there. I'll still find other ways to get on there. But I've I've done that. I've I've done that psychological thing. Well, I've taken it on my phone. My life will improve now, and I will write a novel. OK, well, I think this one's long enough without me having to uh, make it any longer with um, post-credits and all of that nonsense. So I um, hope you've enjoyed the trip to Marco Polo. Um, here's a little personal thing. Mark Eden I wrote to because of this Quatermass book that's taken me forever to write back in uh, back in the 80s. And because Quatermass and the Pit had been his first TV job, he had kept his uh, contract uh, and he sent it to me because... Uh, he said, "Well, you know, you probably like it. You probably like it, and I did like it, and I've still got it. Uh, so I've got Mark Eden's actual contract for Quatermass and the Pit, which was really thoughtful of him. I thought, and I was able to thank him in person when we then went to his uh, his flat only three or four years ago to record the uh, the uh, commentary for Quatermass and the Pit for the Blu-ray that is out. And also, he he, he works with a a long-term." Uh, no, he's married to a long term colleague of, m- of my partner, who I've also worked with as well as an actor. But um, so it almost, we actually lived very, very close to them, just round the corner for, for, for a long time. And shez would occasionally say, Oh, I've just seen Sue and her husband. And I'd go, No, her husband is Mark Eaton. Her husband is Marco Polo. Uh, and she'd go, Yes, anyway, I've just seen Sue <laughs> and her husband. And part of me would go, Well, I'll invite them round for tea. But as it was, uh, we got invited round to theirs for tea. Uh, for Quatermass purposes, uh, which was nice to do, and uh, it was nice to be able to thank him for sending me that uh, that precious thing all those years ago. Uh, but uh, but uh, gosh, uh, he's now uh, no longer with us. But isn't he good in Marco Polo? Yes, he is. It's a really lovely dramatic performance. Ah, oh, anyway, aren't I lucky to have to have crossed paths with some of these people, albeit briefly? Um, yeah, I am. I am. And I hope me passing on my experiences to you Is nothing other than uh, shared joy It's not boasting, do you know what I mean I don't I don't think of it like that I hope it doesn't come across like that It's just shared joy And uh, and, and it flatters me Who was in the countryside in the middle of nowhere When I grew up and never thought I'd get anywhere near a theatre or TV studio it Flatters me to have been in the orbit of such people If only briefly Anyway I said I wouldn't be very long That was a lie So I'll sue me No, don't don't sue me Please don't sue me. I uh, I haven't got any money.